children in line for breakfast at a public school, La Paz. For many here, it's their first meal of the day, having arrived at school hungry. Here, we do not have enough to eat, and children go to school with no breakfast. There were floods followed by a dry spell, and that affected the crops. It utilizes farm produce, locally grown by small-scale commercial farmers, to provide children nutritious midday meals on every school day. In this country, one initiative that has been severely affected by the pandemic is school meal programs. One study says the number of Canadian children going to school hungry has now doubled. You know, according to a recent study, 66 million children go to school hungry around the world. I mean, like 66 million children. That's unbelievable. My mind cannot conceive of that number. What I do know, though, is that This is not just a problem in far off places. In North America, millions of children arrive at school hungry with no lunch program to help them get through the day. Like that's unbelievable that we're talking about it in this day and age. But school food and children feeding programs have serious gaps around the world and it's made worse by the pandemic. Hi, I'm Zara Batiste in Toronto. And I'm Ryan Clark in Montreal. And on this First Comes Food podcast, We're going to talk about school lunch programs and keeping children fed. And it might sound like that's not very impactful. Like, what does a school meal actually do? It does wonders, not just for children, but for everyone around them. And it's a big part of the reason that Canadian Feed the Children started in the first place 36 years ago, making sure children are fed in school and outside. And you know, it's an area Canadian Feed the Children works in around the world. Yes. And that's, I think that's such a beautiful thing, honestly. At the core of what we do is children and their health and their ability to thrive. And food is one of those things that's universal. It's a universal need. And you see it popping up as a priority in communities all over the world. So even though those communities vary and we don't have a one-size-fits-all approach, it's important to note that this is such an impactful thing for families. People should be aware that even though Canada, for example, may have a low rate of food insecurity, I think it's like 1% of the population. In Indigenous communities, particularly First Nations communities, almost half of the families reported that there were times that getting healthy food was very difficult. We heard a bit about that on the first episode. Yes, we did. And I can't stress enough, and I've said it already, but I can't stress enough the importance of a healthy meal to a child. School meals offer an incentive for children to come to school. They come to school, they get their bellies filled, but then they also remain in school. They don't have to leave to go find food during the day. They have more energy to concentrate on their studies and their problem solving skills are all stronger and they exhibit less disruptive behavior. And overall, it's just such a big benefit to them. That's honestly really fascinating. And I want to hear more about this by heading to a school program in Bolivia that is helping children and their families get access to healthy food. It's just so important. This is going to be really good. High in the Andes Mountains in Sucre, Bolivia, 
children file into an early childhood development center. They're part of the Alan Chaspa, Colin Sane, and Chista program, which means to live well. This program began eight years ago by a local organization known as IPTK, and with the help of Canadian Feed the Children. In those eight years, to live well has grown to enhance thousands of lives here. There are around uh, 450 sponsored kids from age 1 to 18, and around 2,500 parents involved in, in, its, in this project. Director Shirley Estevez says this started as a typical program to feed preschool kids healthy meals and deliver after-school care to older children. Many of the children here never had fruits and vegetables as part of their daily diet because they're expensive, and growing conditions in rural areas above Sucre are not suited to most food production. The program grew quickly and was popular among Indigenous children here. It expanded into all kinds of extracurricular activities. Of course, the education part of the project is very important because we are supporting also public schools with some um, school supplies for the children attending those schools that are part of the sponsorship system. And uh, they also have uh, the opportunity to participate in extracurricular activities such as uh, chess contests, uh, dancing, uh, music, and uh, sports. Shirley Estevez says they also noticed parents became curious about what was happening at the center, and the kids enjoyed the healthy food. It started with the ECD center's implementation, where children under five, they started to change their feeding habits. They've started to diversify their diet within the ECD centers and attending the after-school programs as well. When they got these habits, they went to their homes and demanded to their mothers those nutritious food, those veggies. So mothers started to ask if they could start growing vegetables. The project supported them to implement their family gardens. Now, families have been given garden plots, or solar tents as they're called, to grow all kinds of healthy food, both at the center and at home. So a solar tent is a space around 28 square meters where they have uh, destined to grow their, their vegetables. Um, lettuce, tomatoes, uh, pumpkins, cucumbers, celeries, things like, like that, those kind of vegetables that are nutritious, of course, and that are part of their new diet. I have two daughters, and with my husband, we are four. I have been devoted to the production of vegetables, and I also have some fruit plants. During the pandemic, it helped me a lot. I had healthy products at my reach. I had no need to go to the market. The gardens have grown so successful, there's excess food, which is now sold in the neighborhood by the local growers, spreading the healthy food even further. The older children also help in the gardens and are offered classes to learn about food production and cooking healthy meals. I was taking gastronomy and pastry classes. There, I learned to cook healthy food. In the future, I want to be a chef. I want to learn to study. And when I complete that, I would like to have my own business and sell my products. I didn't know that we should eat so much fruit and vegetables. 
But when I took those classes, I learned a lot. I have my solar tent with my mom. There, we produce everything. The solar gardens have also begun producing new products. About a hundred women formed a cooperative association and are now growing flowers to sell at the market, along with the extra food they produce. It's brought a new source of income to dozens of families. And mothers could also be more uh, self-sufficient in terms of the economy, in terms of empowering them to have a livelihood, to, to increase their income. And nowadays they are also diversifying these income generation activities and they've started to produce flowers. Shirley Estevez says the program has grown in ways they initially didn't think possible and has truly helped transform a region with the help of Canadian Feed the Children. It's providing a comprehensive scope of what an individual from early age needs to become a well-educated person in terms of having a good nutrition, having a quality education, access to nutritious food, to healthy food, but also to um, develop their soft skills, their life skills in order to succeed in life and to break the poverty cycle. You know, I'm so proud of the work that Shirley and the team is doing in Bolivia, not just with the lunch programs, but now how families are growing their own food. They're changing the ways they prepare their food. Some of them are actually moving back to indigenous ways of preparing food using local ingredients. And I think that connects so beautifully with what we talked about before with the food forest program. And now they're spinning off into other like agribusiness activities like um, selling flowers. So it's one of those things that I'm super proud of our organization for doing. And also just Shirley's amazing. She is a big superstar. <laughs> I can't like I'm just so impressed by her every time we talk. And healthy food, whether it's just being attentive in the classroom or just in general, being nourishing to their bodies and growing it teaches them so many skills. It's all about healthy living and that's a big part of it. And yes, we're addressing that immediate need, but we're also um, laying the groundwork for thriving food systems. And that's the end goal here. We want sustainable, thriving communities where everyone has access to healthy and affordable mm -hmm. and culturally specific food. And that's the very definition of food security. For more on that, we're going to go to Dee Dee Miller. Dee Dee is the Healthy Living Coordinator at the local elementary school in Nayashinaming. Dee Dee has worked for many years on food security initiatives at school, from school meals through to land-based education initiatives. Hey Dee Dee, thanks for joining us. Hi Ryan, glad to be here. Can you tell me a bit more about the kind of work you do at the school? Sure. Primarily, my, my position started really supporting the, the school's nutrition program. And in the infancy of the program, it really began with starting a breakfast program. I was an educator 17 years ago. And um, at that time, we had students coming in that had nothing in, in their bags for lunch. And so I, I do remember those days where they were coming into the staff room and just seeing if there was anything. And so that was just the eye-opener, uh, I think, for us as a community school, recognizing that we, we really needed to provide some type of food security within the school system. 
And I'm glad to say that in this day of 2022, that we have a fully rounded food program at the school. And, and that's what I support. I definitely want to touch more on the program itself and it, the results you've seen. But first, I'm curious, uh, what kind of school is it? Could you describe it to us at all? Sure. You know, I, I just think we're a small school with a big heart. So we provide service for students uh, from grades K to 8. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely a family feel. You know, we're from a small community, so a small community school. We do have our own board of education within our First Nations. So that's really beneficial in um, that we can provide the type of um, education that we want to see. I'm curious how many kids benefit from the program and if you want to talk a bit about the results you've seen in these kids. Typically, um, enrollment varies from year to year, but this year we have about 80 students attending our school. The benefits uh, that we've seen over the years since implementing a more well-rounded nutrition program, the benefits that we see are, are just exponential, not only for the youth, but for the families. We're getting a lot of positive feedback over the years from the families and just how appreciative they are knowing that they feel supported from our community school and from the nutrition program. We've seen increase in attendance from our students. In the earlier days, you know, a lot of people, a lot of the kids were missing school because they didn't have food oh, to wow. And so we, we see almost like full attendance uh, from our young people. Definitely, they're more engaged, they're more focused in the morning. And because they don't have to worry about where their next meal is coming from or what they're going to have for snack, you know, during break time. You know, I just say they can come in, be kids. They can just be themselves, be kids and learn what they need to learn. And that's what we've really uh, supported through the nutrition program. I almost get the vibe that this program is not only helping the kids, but it's also helping the communities equally. Do you feel like that's the case? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that is one of our focuses is we, we started with the youth really to combat and address that initial food insecurity issue. Mm-hmm. The young people know that they don't have to worry about it. When they come into school and they sit down in class, they, they don't need to worry about whether they have food to eat. And I told them, no matter what I have to do, you will always have healthy food here. So the one thing that we have added to the nutrition program is to support families, especially through COVID. Mm. We did see an increase in need. And so whether it was good food bags that were going home with the students, with with breakfast foods and staples and, and things like that, it was such um such a, a positive impact for our families because there was a lot of at-home learning as well during COVID. Right. And it doesn't mean that kids didn't need to eat because they weren't at school. So that was one thing that we just addressed, you know, for our families and for our students, just how do we continue to support the food program, even though they were still learning at home and that they were at home for quite a good chunk of the school year. I love how dynamic this program is, where it affects both the community, but also adapts to challenges that may present itself in the future or that have presented itself like COVID-19. I'm curious to kind of touch on a bit more of what are some of the biggest needs in the community and are there any ways that you're trying to tackle that? Yeah, the one one thing that we really noticed that COVID, I think, magnified was just access to affordable, healthy food. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are a rural community. Typically in rural communities, prices are higher already. 
And just with COVID and climate change of the COVID situation, we've seen that increase in gas costs, in in food costs, but yet, you know, there's not an increase in wages or anything like that. So families and and households that were already living paycheck to paycheck Mm -hmm. are really feeling the weight of, of what is happening right now. And so we just try to look for ways that we can partner. Like within my program, I recognize the absolute importance of partnerships. And so I I really try to partner with other community programs and just seeing like how we can join hands together and pool our resources so that we can offer a greater impact for our community. So one of the things that we, we just did before the summer was just a good food giveaway where it was just ordering fresh produce and, you know, we had it outside. And on a typical day, we were probably getting like 75 to 100 households through. Mm, And, And it was just, you know, we did it for about three months and it was just until the summer. But it really just kind of gave that breathing room for households that they could come and it just gave them a a little bit of relief financially when it came to good, healthy food. I just want to touch a little bit on some of the longer term goals for this program. You've definitely mentioned food partnerships and food giveaways and a lot of other amazing things. But I'm wondering if you can touch on that a little bit more. Sure. A few years ago, my program moved into a more community focused program. And we just recognize the need for all ages to be involved. So we're making serious movements. Uh, we know we're recognizing we need to make serious movements toward more sustainable methods of food security within our community. And um, just like within this school, we know that we're going to still have to meet those immediate needs that address food insecurity, but also that we need to really be identifying what can we be doing within the community to work towards more sustainable methods. And talking about food sovereignty, like we need to make those decisions. What do we want to see within Neoshengaming? And uh, so one of the things that we have committed to is the revitalization of community garden and really helping to grow that, you know, starting small, uh, which we did last year, um, just kind of starting it up again, but also how do we realistically work towards growth every year? Hopefully that it can sustain, you know, food initiatives within the community. And so we are seeing a huge uh, participation from the community. There's a lot of excitement. Last year, like I said, was our first year. We had an open house for the garden. And that was one of the first times that seniors had been out since COVID. They were walking through the garden. And I remember there's this, this one senior and she had tears in her eyes, you know, just walking mm-hmm. around in the garden because that is something that, you know, most households did you know, many, many years ago. It, was, it wasn't it was just a hobby, it was a necessity. And, you know, the, the resounding message that we're getting from our elders and our, our knowledge holders and that we're recognizing is that we need to get back to that. We really need to be active participants in uh, producing our own food and sustaining food systems within Neoshengaming. So that is definitely a long-term goal. I know it's a big mountain ahead of us, but it's definitely not impossible uh, with great partnerships. Didi, thank you so much for talking to me today and teaching us so much about the work that's being done here. Thank you, Ryan. It's been my pleasure. 
more amazing work. I'm so glad that Dee Dee and her school, they're doing so well. And this has been a really long-term partnership for us. When I started at CFTC five years ago, that was the most engaged program that we had. And just to see it grow and to see so many children taking part and now their family members and everybody getting involved in growing food, it's really great. For more on the bigger picture of how critical school food programs are, we're going to speak with Rachel Angler-Stringer. She's a professor and researcher in the Department of Community Health and Epidemiology at the University of Saskatchewan. Hey, Rachel, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So this may sound like an obvious question, but I want to hear in your own words how a healthy meal helps a student. Well, there's a number of ways that a healthy meal at school helps a student. So I'm not a teacher. I'm not in the classroom day to day. I'm a researcher. But what I hear from teachers, what I read from the literature is that it's focused in the classroom ability to really engage in what is being learned in a particular, you know, context. If we're talking about breakfast at school, you know, it's sort of that morning ability to focus. I hear often from teachers that a lunch meal at school really also contributes to kids staying at school for the whole day. So otherwise, sometimes kids will go home looking for something to eat and then don't make it back to school. Hmm, That's really interesting. And to kind of touch on that a bit, what types of behaviors and results do you see in kids who go to a classroom hungry? The kinds of behaviors that we see reported in the literature are mostly an inability to focus, an inability to stay on task, you know, more um, behavioral issues, sort of just broadly acting out those sorts of things and being more emotional (laughs) in the classroom, those sorts of things. So for kids to be able to eat at school really, you know, gives them the opportunity to be their best selves in that educational context. And generally in Canada, how are we in providing food programs? So Canada is the only G7 country and one of a few OECD countries that does not have some sort of national school food program. Um, In fact, if you look globally, it's close to three quarters of countries, three quarters of kids globally, actually, who have some sort of school, school meal program. So Canada is a bit of an anomaly. We have what we describe as ad hoc programs kind of here and there. So across, you know, provinces and territories, there are programs at the individual school level, sometimes at, you know, sometimes at the provincial level, but mostly here and there in schools that are perceived as being in high need, but nothing that is consistent across the country. And because we don't have a national school food policy, we do have, you know, we have some standards in place, but there aren't a lot of teeth to them. So meaning that while they might exist, generally adherence to any kind of nutritional standards is uh, weak at best. And just because you mentioned this, I'm really curious, is there a province that you see like a really well-run efficient program in or are they kind of all sort of similar? There are a lot of differences across the country. So I would say right now, there's a number of things happening. Um, So there's a lot of change happening when it comes to school food programs. Provincial governments and territorial governments have really started to see their importance and are kind of slowly establishing uh, more, you know, programs that are sort of more consistent. So 
One example might be Prince Edward Island, where the provincial government is in the process of piloting universal school lunch programs. It's, you know, PEI is a small place, so it's a little bit easier, perhaps, to start that process there. There's just now been an infusion of money into the BC programs. There was some a little oh, maybe a year ago or so in Quebec. Uh, You know, there's a number of places where we're starting to see a bit more kind of consistency across provinces and territories. But, you know, overall, nobody nobody is all, all the way there. But there are certainly provincial pilots happening. Is there a place in the world where you see really well-run programs that we could use as a model for our provinces and the rest of the country of Canada? Oh, absolutely. So the countries that people tend to hold up as being some of the best examples are Japan. We see Finland, France to some degree, Italy to some degree. So I'll give you the example of the program in Japan. And maybe Japan and Finland, I think there there are two that are a little bit different from each other, but have some elements that are really quite critical. So in Japan, they've got excellent national policy when it comes to integrating their school lunch program into the curriculum. So it's not just eating lunch at school. It's also a strong focus on health and nutrition. It's sort of a well-being focused school lunch program. Kids are involved in serving each other. It's very strong focus on the sort of social nature of eating and, you know, healthy eating habits, those sorts of things. Uh, And then also a bit of a focus on local food and ensuring that the food supporting the local economy. So Japan, I would say, is a really fascinating example from that standpoint. In Japan, it's not free for families. So parents pay a proportion of the costs of the school food program, similar to, I would say, probably the more common model. As far as I know, there isn't a sliding scale, although there would be some families where, you know, if financial means are not available, that the program would not cost the family anything. And then Finland, as a bit of a juxtaposition, is somewhat similar to Japan in terms of what I described before, but it is completely free for all children. So two different models. Now, I will say one of the differences between Japan and Finland and Canada is our diversity. You know, both Finland and Japan are somewhat homogeneous countries in terms of their populations. Canada, on the other hand, is a very, very diverse country. And arguably, there's many ways in which we could follow the examples of countries like Finland and Japan, but ways in which we couldn't because of differences in terms of our population. What do you feel like is the biggest takeaway from your Exploring Universal School Lunch Program study? Yeah, so this is the project that we started relatively recently. So this is a partnership between us and the Meadow Lake Tribal Council, so their education division and their nine schools across MLTC communities, Canadian Feed the Children, Chap Good Food, Inc., and Saskatoon Public Schools. So that project is happening in Meadow Lake Tribal Council schools and some Saskatoon schools. And it's really focused on ensuring that those school communities have the resources to design school food programs that will suit their community's needs. So what do communities want in their ideal school food programs? So that's what we're working on. So we're only six months in, so I don't know that I can say I've learned an enormous (laughs) amount yet, other than to say that there is 
a great desire to do a great job when it comes to school food programs. There's so much innovation, innovative thinking. There's this real desire to incorporate traditional foods. So those foods, you know, country foods, traditional foods, depending on the language that that you like to use. So foods that are traditional to Indigenous communities. There's a desire to incorporate land-based learning. And then also sort of gardening and greenhouse building and so on into school food programs. There's what I'm understanding, you know, I think probably the most important thing that I'm understanding is that culture is critical to school food programs. And it might look a little different from community to community in terms of priorities, but that really, uh, you know, incorporating cultural elements into programs is going to be key. And for me as a researcher, you know, I'm thinking about what that means in the context of Canada as a whole and sort of, you know, communities across Canada. And that really adds weight to the evidence that I've already seen internationally that says that it's critical that there's local control over Mm. school food programs, that it can't be something that's centralized. There has to be an ability of communities themselves to determine what their school food situation looks like. You guys are doing such amazing work and it's really showing, but how can us individuals help (laughs) listening to this podcast? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, number one, follow the Coalition for Healthy School Food. They are a really strong voice. They're putting out, you know, everything from webinars to, you know, you can go through and read their principles and so on. And and you can become involved in various different ways with them. I would also say, talk to your MP right now. This is a conversation that is happening behind the scenes federally. And there are ministries who have been tasked with trying to think through what a national school food program could look like for Canada. And honestly, I think our governments, both provincially and federally, I mean, I'm talking about federally right now, but both provincially and federally, they need to hear that this is important, that this is a way to support families. This is, I would argue, part of post-pandemic recovery, not having to worry about what your kid is eating at school, that they're learning about food, at the same time as eating it, all the kids are eating the same thing. As a nutritionist, that's my background. I can tell you all the kids eating the same thing is a really huge, has a really, really huge nutritional benefits. All of these things, you know, talking about that being your priority, I, I would say, have your voice heard. Tell those in positions of power that this is important to you. Rachel, thank you so much for talking. I appreciate you sharing such wonderful information on the work being done. Oh, thank you for having me. It's the communities that are doing the work. I'm just learning from them and uh, reporting back what I'm seeing. Well, keep up the great work and keep up the great communication, I should say. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. It's so great to hear that overview from Rachel. And now we really understand the work that has to be done nationally. It's such important work and it really needs to be touched on. This has been such a wonderful podcast to work on, Ryan. I've really enjoyed working with you on this and checking in with our partners around the world, hearing their takes on how this all benefits children. It's been really wonderful working with you on this. And it's awesome because the children are participating themselves, which is so important. And that's the most rewarding part. I know. I, you know, that's why I'm here. Like, at the end of the day, it's so great to touch people's lives on such an important level and just to see how children react, how children smile, how they light up 
when they see that type of impact in their life, when they receive a school meal, when they get school books, when they get to play on the land and learn from their elders. It's all such a wonderful thing to be part of. Thank you so much, Ryan. And there's many more other people to thank. And I'm just going to say thank you to the Sprott Foundation Canada, the Slate Family Foundation, all our individual donors, all our monthly donors, everyone who comes together to support children. They are the force behind school meals and our child development programs and everything we do. Thank you to everyone for listening. This has been Food Comes First, a podcast by Canadian Feed the Children. Thanks for listening. For more on how you can support Canadian Feed the Children, go to our website at canadianfeedthechildren.ca. That's canadianfeedthechildren.ca. There's all kinds of information on the Food Forest Program and all of the work that we do in Canada and abroad.